When Lisa Selen Davis's daughter first called herself a tomboy at the age of six, Davis was reluctant to accept it as the concept she had observed throughout her own life as an innocuous way to self-identify for a kid who rejected pink-clad princesses and were instead sweatpants sporty. For Davis, tomboy seemed outdated. Had the definition changed? Davis set out to answer that question and to find out where tomboys fit into our changing understandings of gender. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. In Tomboy, journalist Lisa Selen Davis explores the evolution of the term tomboy from the Victorian era to a 21st century fashion statement. The book is a comprehensive deep dive into the word, the concept, what it implies and doesn't. We learn about those who defy traditional gender boundaries to be themselves. We spoke to Lisa Selen Davis from her home in Brooklyn. I really appreciate that you include in your book, first off, a chapter that answers the question, what the heck is a tomboy anyway? <laughs> because I think people think they know in 2020, but it it's it's a different word in 2020, isn't it? Well, I think one of the most interesting things about the word and maybe about these arguments we're having about language and in general is how much the meaning of the word has changed and the attitude toward the word has changed. And it seems to be, in America, it seems pretty universally reviled that certain people certain people feel like it's offensive to call a girl a tomboy because it's saying that all these qualities that we think of as making a girl a tomboy, being sporty and brave and independent, that those are actually boy things. And then other people feel offended by it either because they want the term gender nonconforming or they feel like it's it's offensive to trans people in some way or sometimes trans people are told they're not trans, they're just tomboys. So And the word is, is weaponized in that way. So there's all this disdain for the word, mostly from people who don't realize how much work that word once did in the even up until, you know, 10 years ago to allow girls to behave in ways that people would think of as boy typical without getting in trouble. So it's pretty fascinating. I want to talk to you about the sense of tomboy maybe uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. It was like, and you write about this in your book, it was like this, let's say a TV character, um, like the Joes, right? <laughs> the yeah, Joe characters. Yeah. And they were that sort of sporty, you know, um, the ripped jeans, the baseball cap on backwards, but there was still um, a femininity about them. You know, they they still sort of got the guy on the show or, you know, something like that. I'm thinking of like Christy McNichol or the Joe character in the show, The Facts of Life. I feel like, like Tomboy just ha- really had a different sense that's that's just morphed even in in the media, right? Even on on television. I think it was always important in media representations of tomboys to reassure the audience that they were not lesbians. And what's funny about The Facts of Life is that, which I write about in the book, which was a show I grew up on, and everyone remembers and loves this character, Joe, who was the, the tomboy character, 
um, from it who fixed her own motorcycle and wore a leather jacket and talked tough and was like a working class kid from, I feel like maybe she was supposed to be from the Bronx, um, maybe Queens. But when I went back to look at the show, there was a different tomboy in the first episode, um, a blonde girl, not, not a tough girl, just a girl who liked wearing sporty outfits. And she gets worried because Blair, the mean girly girl, tells her that she's probably a lesbian and she gets scared and Mrs. Garrett has to reassure her that no, this has, you know, what we would say today, your gender expression, of course they didn't say that then, but this doesn't mean anything about who you're going to love um, and don't worry, those feelings will kick on at the appropriate moment and then she goes to a dance and has feelings for a boy and everybody's happy. And that's the first episode is just to say like, it's totally fine to have this masculine appearance, but you better not, you better not be gay. <laughs> so that message, that message has been there from the beginning and earlier, in earlier depictions, tomboys were always expected to surrender their masculine ways at puberty and then to become proper feminine and heterosexual ladies. Yeah, there's a lot of that, I think, um, on television. Uh, like, And I'm thinking of, and you write about uh, some of these in your book too, like Laura Ingalls um, on The Little House on the Prairie. Uh, and I, I've noticed it too, like Mary Ellen on the Waltons. It's like, you know, sort of struggling with she wanted to be this beautiful girl, but but at the same time, you know, she could go fishing and skip rocks and do this all this other stuff with the brothers. So yeah. just uh, an interesting interesting depictions on television that we grew up with. And I think what's interesting today, and what I write about too, is I feel like there we have more depictions of trans kids so often if you get a really masculine girl today in she'll end up transitioning in the show and so like that's an important story to tell but then it still kind of leaves out this space where girls can be masculine and either be lesbians or not lesbians or you know have it have it not have to do with their sexuality or gender identity but just be this is the way they feel comfortable being in the world and that masculinity doesn't actually belong to men. And it's funny how many times we've tried to make that point, you know, over and over and over in different ways of feminism, that things we mark as, mas as masculine, which in the 19th century might have been tree climbing or even whistling or wearing pants, right? You wouldn't, a girl wouldn't do that. Um, and then we make these gains and we say, no, girls can do those things. And it's still very confusing for people. Like, what, what is acceptable? What is typical? What is normal? What, what is biologically for boys and girls? And these questions are still swirling around. And I think, though, we have new kinds of information about it. I think most of us don't have... Um, the historical context that I tried to gather in this book that shows how we, how and why we decided what is masculine and feminine and what's appropriate for boys and girls. Well, this book is so deeply reported and researched, but it really started with uh, something personal that happened in your own family. Yes, I mean, not just, not just something personal, but I think our own 
our own like long journey as a family, which and I, you know, I have two daughters for now, and I have one who is very um, what we might think of as stereotypically masculine, and one who we might think of as very stereotypically feminine. And over the years, I've written uh, different things about them, as well as noticed how differently they were treated and how much approval there was for my older daughter who has called herself a tomboy since someone gave her that word at age six, um, how much more approval there is for that, for the facilitating of her masculinity than there is for the facilitating of my other daughter's more traditionally feminine desires. And it was also, it was that those experience, those experiences as well as watching the confusion that my older daughter caused for adults who just could not understand that a, a young girl would want short hair and would want to play probably, you know, a little more with boys than girls and would play sports and wear sweatpants and occasionally a tie um, and still want to identify as a girl. And they were very kind and trying to facilitate her and always asking her if she wanted new pronouns or wanted to change in a different locker room. And it all came out of kindness, but it was also so based on stereotypes that it kind of boggled my mind since I was raised in a time when girls were expected to look like that in the 1970s, when we were all wearing striped t-shirts and corduroys and had matching boy and girl bowl haircuts. So I was trying to understand my family's experience in this cultural moment and then ask, why is it so different for my child than it was for me in the 1970s? And why, if we have these new understandings of gender that these adults in her life are responding to, is there less understanding for a girl like this? And that's, those are some of the questions I set out to answer in the book. So the book is not about my family, but it is inspired by those experiences. There's something that I feel in reading the book that it, I feel like it's a, such a contentious topic to get the right word, to have the right <laughs> concept in mind. Um, or you're canceled, right? And yeah, and it's so, it's such a, a fraught space. So, did you brush it up against that a lot? Yes, I've experienced that a couple of times, and it's definitely affected me in profound ways. That when I've written or said things about gender that people disagree with, there's much less of a tendency to to attack my points than it than there is a tendency to attack my person or my parenting and that was really frightening for me I think as a freelancer who doesn't wield a lot of power who doesn't have institutional backing I didn't know you know what it what it meant when people try to discredit me and say don't don't listen to this person and also like we're going to come to the park and find your daughter and take her I didn't like that either but um, my husband really believes that when you get criticized, and since he's married to me, he gets criticized pretty much nonstop. He believes that it is important to 
sit and listen to it. And he, whenever I'm complaining about someone <laughs> criticizing me, he says, was there anything of value so in, in their criticism? So eventually I looked at what some of my critics had said about things I'd written about gender and about my kid and did try to did try to learn did try to reach out to people who disagreed with me i don't think most people do that and i and i think that that strategy of trying to cancel people who want to say nuanced things about gender that veer slightly from the current zeitgeist i don't support that because i think it just makes more enemies than allies of people who should be on the same side but as a personal growth strategy, it's pretty interesting. And I'm, I'm still very afraid of cancellation, again, because I, don't, I, don't, I know people have lost their jobs and um, have had their mental health severely affected. And yet I also know that a lot of the people participating in trying to cancel someone are people with less power and um, feel like they're fighting for their lives. So. I, I see the complexity, but I am one of those people who desperately wishes for complex discussion about difficult topics without trying to discredit or cancel the people involved in the conversation. I think I know what you're saying. I mean, it is so complicated because even among sort of the, the cancelers, opinions vary. Right. It's really hard to know, but just, you know, to know that your daughter walks in into your house one day and says, I'm a tomboy. This is the word that she offered. And that then the question becomes, what is that? What does it mean now? What does it mean in the aught versus in the 70s? And it it is an interesting question because it, the word is so loaded. And I never thought of the word necessarily as loaded. It, and it just feels now like it's a word some people would like to use. And then there are many more people that would like the terms to be more nuanced. What I appreciate about your book is that you're trying to cover this idea of tomboy because it, it's, it still exists. People still use that word. And, and you know, you know, people who were born well after the 70s and 80s and 90s uh, are using that word in different ways. So I feel like to know the history of it, to know, I mean, you take your, your research all the way to like the Victorian era. Who knew that, that deep, right. deep history of this word? Yeah. And the reason it's so complicated is that you know, if we want to, for shorthand, say a tomboy is a girl who um, who acts like a boy, which it would have been in the 19th century because there wasn't really an option to dress like one. But or if we want to say it's a it's a girl who acts and sometimes looks like a boy, we have to we can't stop there because then we have to say, wait, what does that mean? What does it mean to act like a boy? What does it mean to look like a boy? How have those changed? So in the 19th century boys and girls, young boys and girls were dressed the same. They were wearing dresses and they had long hair. And parents did not want to emphasize the sex of their babies because in their minds it was also connected to sexuality because we didn't separate out sexuality, gender identity, gender norms and stereotypes and 
biological sex. They were all mixed together. So you, when you thought about a little kid, if you thought about them as a little man, that was gross. So you, so they were thought of, they were dressed according to age, and they were all dressed the same. And that began to change um, more ubiquitous, more ubiquitously a hundred years ago as our understanding of homosexuality evolved and as the fields of psychology and sexology evolved and people began to think about homosexuality as a class of a class of people not a behavior um, and they wanted to discourage that because they decided that that was wrong not all not all the sexologists especially the gay sexologists did not think it was wrong but homophobia won out, and so parents were then encouraged to, to raise their sons as little men to keep them from being gay. So we might not have had the same sense of boy typical in, for, for young kids in the middle of the 19th century um, that we would have now. And now we really are convinced that, you know, our, our infants are so profoundly different um, and we look for those differences, and but no one was looking for them or finding them before we felt the need to gender childhood so that we could prepare children to inhabit these gender roles. One thing I, I'll ask you about regarding this, uh, the gendering, your research takes a turn into spaces about toys. I found that so fascinating and so at the same time that they started gendering clothes for kids about a hundred years ago. Um, so that they would grow up to be proper heterosexual men and women, they started gendering their toys and encoding messages in the toys about how to be a man and a woman. So that's the beginning of mops and broom sets for girls and erector sets for boys and really, really emphasizing the development of different skill sets in toys. And the only time that really recedes, again, is in the 1970s when we have feminism leaking into popular culture and encouraging women to raise their girls as tomboys um, and, and with the message that girls should have access to whatever boys have access to. And never the other way, right? Never boys should have all the dolls and sparkly rainbow unicorns you want. We, we're just starting to realize how important that is. So these toys, as I mentioned, develop different skill sets. And girls' toys tend to emphasize relationships and nurturing and communication, which are all good things. And boys' toys tend to emphasize spatial relations and construction and problem solving, which are all really good things. And the problem is that we don't want, you don't want to have a deficit of any of those things, right? And to, to have a well-developed kid, you want them to be able to have lots of different kinds of skill sets. And I guess a, the best example of this is that many people remember in the early 1980s, these Lego tomboy ads that have um, kids holding things, constructions they made out of Legos, and um, there's no gender in them. There are all the boys and girls are playing with the same toys, and there's no mention of gender. And then in 2012, they introduced the Lego Friends line, which are basically like girl Legos, and they're not really construction toys. The construction is very minimal. They're basically dollhouse toys. And they've been really, really successful 
But again, they're not building the same skill sets. And they've also given kids the message that those are not for boys and that the regular Lego sets that are like helicopters and, you know, all this cool stuff you can build are not for girls. And it's just, it works really, really well. Parents buy it, kids want it, kids absorb the message about what they're supposed to like. And then it makes people think that it's biological. Um, And really what it does is just emphasize sex differences that may or may not be innately there, but we don't know because we don't raise children the same way. But they certainly encourage us to think of each other as different species and they encourage boys to think of girls as less than and girls to think of themselves that way too. Well, I have heard you say in interviews that when we're talking about these topics, we really have to talk about boys. There have been so many waves of concerted efforts to get girls into STEM to dispel the myth that girls are naturally bad at math, that they don't have a natural aptitude for the sciences, things they've been told over and over again, that they don't have leadership skills. And because we've made these efforts, we've seen that those things are are not true and that girls can't, you know, girls have made tremendous gains in STEM fields and often outperform boys um, when when they're young. Um, Of course, then there's the leaky pipeline and they drop out. They don't necessarily pursue those careers for a variety of reasons. But we've never given that message to boys that it's perfectly fine for you to like the things that are marked as feminine. And many, many boys like pink, which is, you know, there's no reason that pink is for one kind of person or another. It's just a color. And... um, in history has been thought of at times as masculine because it's a variant of red, right? So, and blue has been thought of as feminine because light blue is associated with the Virgin Mary. So it's, it's not, it wasn't set in stone until, you know, sometime in the, in the last 70, 80 years that pink is for girls and blue is for boys. And because boys are dissuaded from liking what's on the girl side of the, of the pink-blue divide, they're also dis- dissuaded from developing those skill sets of nurturing and empathy and <laughs> kindness. And, and they're dissuaded from embracing any part of themselves that's interested in that stuff and, you know, learn how to feel shame about it because we mark this stuff as feminine, even though it's mostly just human. Now, I, you know, all these conversations we were having about toxic masculinity and a crisis among boys is all because of this really narrow range of normal, which is not a, is not a human range. Most of the stuff we mark as masculine and feminine doesn't really have to do with biology. Not all of it, but most of it. You write in your book about the first time someone outside your family circle got your daughter's gender right in a long, long time, and it happened because she had <laughs> grown her hair out. That's so curious right. to me. And I'm, I'm also curious uh, to know wh- what your daughter thinks about the book Tomboy. Um, she did grow her hair out long. Um, none of us really noticed um, cause she was still playing baseball and, you know, she was still her just, um, just so happened that a couple of times we went out in the world 
and people said things like, oh, that hat looks nice on her. Or in the book I write about, we're getting our luggage and this man takes takes the suitcase from her and says, I got that for you, darling. And that was really the first time she had been treated like a girl in her whole life. And I got to say, it was like, it was not a good way to be treated with the assumption that you cannot carry this bag because of your body, because she's very, very sporty and strong and likes to carry heavy bags. Uh, Most of the people I interviewed actually really enjoyed being physically strong. And um, so she, she got to live the experiments that many social scientists had, had tried to create that show how we treat boys and girls differently. Um, and you know, when, I, when I first started writing about my kids, because I'd always written a lot of personal essays, um, I did not think about how it would impact them or what they would think later. I thought more about this is what I do with my shame and grief and confusion and joy and I, tr- I translate that stuff into essays. But I had received like a, a lot of criticism for writing about her experience. Um, I still wanted to re- write this book and I want, I'm so glad I learned all this stuff, but I did it in a different way than I've ever written anything, which is that I let every single person, as far as I know, <laughs> um, who's in it, read what I'd written about them. And if they wanted to make edits, which very, very few people did, um, they could. And so my daughter fact-checked some things. Um, Sometimes she was wrong (laughs) because she doesn't remember things in the order they happened. But um, so I got her approval as much as I could. And I've tried to keep her out of it as, as much as I could because for me, the book is a message to parents and people everywhere, um, that we have a lot more to learn about gender than what we're talking about now or than what the culture wars are allowing us to discuss, and that we need to make room for all kinds of kids, including mine. Lisa Selen Davis, thanks so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Lisa Selen Davis is an essayist, novelist, and journalist. She's the author of Tomboy. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>